Man, I don't know about you, but uh, I could use a laugh, y'all. It's been a long week. America has turned into one big protest movement. From Minneapolis to Gadsden, Alabama, people have poured into the streets to express their anger and grief at the police killing of George Floyd. And their anger at the centuries of systemic racism that got us to this point. And the response of governments to those protests have been... spotty, at best. Starting with the President of the United States, who had a crowd of peaceful protesters gassed so that he could take a picture standing with a Bible in front of a church. I wish that were a joke. But in a lot of ways, it's been an inspiring week. Yes, it's also been draining. As I'm recording this, it's only Friday morning and I've already seen colleagues attacked, tear gassed by the police, and detained for doing their jobs. So yeah, maybe we could all use a laugh right now. And that's why I sat down again with the well-read comedy crew of Trey Crowder, Drew Morgan, and Corey Ryan Forrester. If you listened to season one, you may remember that I tried to record an interview with him last year and I completely screwed up the sound. That is still available as a bonus episode. And if you can get past some of the noise issues, you'll learn a lot more about their history there. Go check it out in season one. But I sat down with them in part because, well, when we recorded the conversation, I had no idea what the world was going to be like. But also, comedy has always been a part of protest movements. Just this past week in Birmingham, a stand-up comic, Jermaine Funnymane Johnson, spearheaded a movement to bring down a Confederate monument that had been up for more than a century. Throughout the 60s, comedian Dick Gregory was a vital part of the civil rights movement, as well as a stand-up comic and a writer and a social critic. Lenny Bruce was a pioneer for free speech and social justice. And these guys, Trey, Drew, and Corey, they also used their comedy to push for a better world. I don't know that they'd necessarily feel comfortable with me throwing them with all those big names, but... They are people who have turned the idea of Southern comedy on its head. You know, three guys from Tennessee and Georgia, three Appalachian guys who are really challenging the world's perceptions of what a Southerner is and what a comedian is and what it means to be an ally for justice. Now, just a warning before we get started, we do use a lot of bad language in this episode, so it's up to you whether you want to listen to it with kids in the car or not. We discuss Southern comedy, including a draft of Southern comics. And we discuss George Floyd and the protest movement, and why it's important for groups of white men like us to be active and to hold each other accountable with conversations like this. Like all their work, it'll make you think, but hopefully it'll make you laugh too. I know we could all use it. So let's dive in right now to this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, guys, welcome back to the Reckon interview. We did this once last year, and I completely screwed up the sound. So, Trey, Corey, Drew, thanks for uh, making time to come back on. Absolutely, buddy. Yeah, and don't feel bad about I couldn't even tell you how many times we've screwed up the sound on our podcast. Like, when we last spoke, y'all were on tour. You had stopped in Huntsville, Alabama. And now I think you're all stuck at home. It's probably a weird time to be making a living as a comedian. Well, we wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, we're not making a living. <laughs> you do have more experience than some with... Yeah, we're making a bunch of Zoom calls as comedians, yeah. not a living per se. You were also working on a show. How's that coming along? Which which, <laughs> which, one? Yeah. which one? Yeah, we've had a few different uh, iterations of things. And we do have one that was like... I mean, I guess I could say this. I go into the specifics. We had just like sold a pitch to a studio for a, a new 
kind of show with us, but that was literally right before, you know, the world ended and it didn't, it didn't end that, but it just screwed that up. Like it screwed everything else on the planet up. You know what I mean? So it kind of just messed with the timeline everybody, all the studios are scrambling and all that stuff. And you know, it's still a thing, but it's just kind of in a holding pattern right now, I guess, like a lot of things are. So, L.A. is still on lockdown, as far as I know. I mean, but places like Alabama and Georgia are starting to open up. I don't know if comedy clubs are open in Georgia yet or not. Technically, I think they are in Alabama. At what point would y'all feel comfortable touring again? I mean, is the audience there for it? Would you be having to play to like half open, half empty crowds? How how would that work? Well, the thing is, is like for us touring, it's fine to say, uh, okay, we're going to limit the crowd space at the show. We're going to do all this and that, but we still have to get to the show. Right. Like we still have to get on an airplane and, and get in, go to an airport, like a huge hub where even if an airport somehow tried to do stuff like that, I mean, there's still, I mean, how many people are going to be there? How many people are going to have touched this, this and that? And so I don't know. I mean, like to answer it truthfully, I'm not going to feel safe until there's a vaccine us going on tour would have not really little to do with how the club is actually functioning because the whole world is still yeah. probably designed. And for us in particular, and we haven't done any kind of like polled our fans or anything like that, but I'm just making a pretty educated guess about this with our fans in particular, you know, they obviously skew much more liberal and progressive. We also have a lot of uh, fans, you know, middle-aged and, and up so in like you know risk groups and stuff so i very much question whether or not our fan base in particular would you know largely be on board with us trying to do these sort of like limited shows like this i mean i think i think you know some for sure some people would still come but i think we would have a lot of people who otherwise would come if everything was normal who won't chance it. And I mean, you know, you can't blame anybody who feels that way about it. So I feel like for us particularly, that's kind of the main thing. Uh, I think it mind. would uh, reveal the split of which of our fans were mostly liberal and which of our fans were mostly redneck. <laughs> and in terms of money and just making it viable, I don't just mean like us getting rich. I mean, in terms of us being able to afford to stay in a hotel and eat while we're there. Yeah, I don't I don't think that on that side of things it'll happen for a while. In terms of your specific question about being comfortable, I assume you mean as professionals putting it out there that we're coming out. I don't know. I don't even know how to begin to answer that right now. Not anytime soon for me. If you mean as comfortable like as a human being, I can assure you I'll be doing comedy before I'm actually comfortable as a human being completely doing it because the world will eventually start back up. And unless, even if there is a vaccine, there's going to be a part of me that's just generally uncomfortable for a while. Well, and I mean, there's so many people out of work all of a sudden. And like, you know, the amount of money that people are able to spend on things like concerts, comedy shows, things like that. I mean, I, I imagine it's, it's a pretty tough business to be in. And then Corey and I were talking before the rest of y'all jumped on that, like, we're stuck at home in Alabama. Y'all are stuck at home in Los Angeles. And I assume that the cost of living being stuck yeah. at home there is is, is yeah. much higher than if you were in Tennessee. I did a little kind of like performance thing via Zoom yesterday. And I'm, I brought that up. I was like, you know, I always thought if you have to do a de facto house arrest, make sure you do it in a place you are paying at least five times what any sane person would value it at. <laughs> Definitely the, the way to go about it. I had a brief moment when this was all popping off, like at the very beginning where, you know, 
I, I started, I started, you know, really getting my gears turned about stuff. It's like, oh man, all these people are about to be out of jobs and like, you know, who knows a few weeks from now when shit like it's really bad. And I had this like brief moment of, we should maybe get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> you know, like go, go back home. But I just, you know, my wife wasn't on board with that. It definitely would have been a whole thing and probably reactionary. I'm not regretting it yet uh, staying out here, but you know, the longer this goes on, who knows? Well, this is like the moment the preppers had all been waiting for. Yes. And they're fucking it up. (laughs) It's unbelievable. They really are. (laughs) It's unbelievable. It's like, y'all didn't think of masks, you assholes? You got 87 rounds of ammunition and 15 tons of beans, but you ain't got a single mask in your bunker? That's funny. And they didn't last very long either in terms of being willing to tolerate the whole world shutting down. Right. No, not at all. My nihilistic hope, if that's an oxymoron I can adopt, my viewpoint is the world will get back on track or it's going to get so bad and so messed up. I'm just going to stop paying all my bills. And I'm like low down on the list of them coming for me. Yeah. Come kick me out of my house, LA, like (laughs) whatever. So, you know, I'm here. I can right now pay my rent because of, you know, things that they put in place. And I'm grateful for that. They could have done more. They should have done more, but right now I'm okay. When all that runs out, and if we're not open back up and there's not a cure, I've thought about going back home too. But again, my thought process is I'll stay till I'm out of money and then I'll just stop paying for stuff. Yeah. Well, I, and- I know how to steal. <laughs> <laughs> it's the time for it. Uh, and, you know, lots of post-apocalyptic movies take place in L.A. because it's cheaper to film there. So you got the, um, the blueprint for you right there. Trey, you just posted a video. Uh, I watched it just before we started, and it's been on my mind all day. We're recording this Friday, May 29th. Minneapolis has been protesting for the past couple of days. The president's been tweeting about it, talking about police brutality. George Floyd was, was killed by police officers there in, in Minneapolis. You know, I, it's not what I set out for us to talk about, but I feel like we should talk about it. Yeah. We were joking about preppers. You know, they were protesting in the streets a week ago, two weeks ago armed taking over state houses looks very different than their reaction to the protests in in minnesota right now we are four white guys but maybe we're the ones who who probably should start talking about this stuff more so trey you had a very strong reaction to the killing of george floyd that you posted this afternoon walk me through that i mean yeah i just i don't know i i almost I almost like reposted some things that I had done before, you know, when cops killed other people, other black people. (laughs) And was going to try to like make the point of like, you know, how fucked up it is, the continuing relevance of this or whatever. But then I just felt like that would be, I don't know, kind of weird or whatever. But I do think that is a big part of it. I mean, they, it just happens again and again and again, you know, and like you can only, push people so far like when my wife showed me last night she was like oh my god have you seen this and she showed me on her phone it was like riders have taken over a uh, an actual precinct in minneapolis and it's on fire now or whatever and my genuine first reaction to it was well you know maybe they'll stop killing people then you know like i mean i just can't but like i know people seeing like a target getting looted and people are like what does this have to do with anything that's going on and they want they want to like try to make it about that but part of like what i also said in the video is like all of that is also the fault of the cops like that's not i'm not gonna blame right i'm not gonna blame the rioters and shit 
for that stuff either because it wouldn't be happening if they didn't kill another guy also on top of that. And then like refuse to arrest him for so long and basically make it clear they had no intention of doing anything about it. You know I mean? They really forced their fucking hand in, you know, in my mind. And I don't, you know, I just don't, don't blame them. And I don't know what, as I said at the end of it, like they're just the only way it's ever going to like really change is like sweeping fundamental changes to the culture of policing in this country. But I mean, you know, I'll believe that shit when I see it. I don't think that's going to happen, but until it does, I expect more of this shit and more riots and more fires and all of that stuff. It's just, it's really shitty. Yeah. And the way that we talk about riots is just very, I mean, you know, there's two standards, right? Like, there's the freedom fighters and the, you know, the tea partiers and the white liberationists who, uh, you know, they're, they're rioting because they're not wearing masks. But Tea party named after a group of people who looted. Yeah, who just looted and destroyed, out there. destroyed British property. And like they kind of get like literally wear it as a, as a badge. And then, you know, kind of the response to this where, you know, how are you supposed to respond when, when you're being systemically oppressed for right. hundreds they, of they, years? They also, plenty of people pointed out accurately Colin Kaepernick, his whole, his whole entire thing and, you know, what cost him his career and everything was doing exactly what they say you're supposed to do, peacefully protesting specifically this issue for forever. And, you know, all that, all that happened there was that it, you know, cost him a job and nothing changed. It's like, it's not like the black community has just automatically defaulted to violent rioting that's it's the opposite you know like they've they've tried all they've tried and done all the other shit repeatedly and when nothing ever changes like at a certain point you know you uh sort of cross the line i guess i have a very short thing to say and it's the only thing i have to say on the matter and it's certainly not original but it's just that yeah dude protests aren't supposed to make you happy like, you're not supposed to like how someone protests. That's not how a protest works. If a protest was something that you could just walk by and it would be of no consequence, then it wouldn't matter. It's supposed to stand out. I think it sucks that that target got looted, and I think it sucks that a business that had nothing to do with it uh, got their shit fucked up. I do. But that's if, if you're someone out there right now who has enough room in their brain and their soul to care about that, when two days before a black guy was choked to death on the street, if you have it in your body right now, the, the will to give a shit about the fucking target, then you're the reason that they looted a target and you fucking suck. I'm going to do, if you guys will indulge me, a character. And I would like any of you to tell me if you don't know 15 of these people. And if you're listening to this podcast and you've spent more than a year in Alabama or the South, I defy you to tell me you have not met this person. They want these guns. They'll have to come take them. If somebody comes in this house, if a Barack Obama sends somebody to this house, uh, it's going to be a, a bad, over my cold, dead hands. That's where they'll take these guns. For us to pretend like in the South that rednecks and right-wingers don't have a long history and pride associated with not taking shit then to watch a man get choked to death slowly and feign pearl clutching because they stole tvs from a target and set a police precinct on fire 
when you and or your neighbors have been talking about murdering the government my whole life, if somebody even thought about taking your guns, I don't buy it. To quote Trey on the first Black Lives Matter he did, I wonder what the difference is. No, I don't. It's obvious what the difference is. We, where we're from, have a long history of defining the government and standing up for ourselves. So I just cannot fathom anyone who isn't full of shit not understanding this. I used to, when I lived in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, I had this neighbor who was a guy, was a couple years younger than me, and I was in my mid-20s at the time. So, you know, guys in his early 20s who hadn't really had – He's one of those guys that like hadn't had any one job for longer than a few months or something at that point in his life and like lived with his parents and whatnot. And then I remember he got into like the police academy and went through police academy training and all this and became a cop there. And we both went to the same gym and I saw him at the gym after that happened. And I was like, how's the cop thing going, man? And he said, oh, I didn't work out. And at first in my head, I was like, yeah, that checks out literally just because it was a job. You know what I mean? Like he, I just thought that's what was going on. I was like, but I was like, Oh really? What happened? And he said, you know, he had finally got like on shift or whatever. And early on he had to, uh, he got in a situation where he needed to uh, draw his weapon. And he said, he told me in that moment, I realized very clearly that I do not have inside of me, whatever you have to have in order to shoot another human being. And so I knew that I wasn't cut out for it. When he told me that story at the time, a few years ago, I like, I gained a lot of respect for the guy, which I still think that's a valid response to that. But the other night when I was, I told that story to Drew and our other friend, Drew's response to it was, well, it sounds like the wrong cop quit. Yeah. You know, and I, and like, that's what, I think that's like kind of indicative of the whole issue. Cause I think that happens a lot. There's this like to him, he knew, you know, after having been through the Academy and whatnot, if I can't kill somebody, then I can't do this job. You know what I mean? When like, those are exactly the types of people that you would prefer be cops, but it's just indicative of this underlying like cultural thing that they have in that world. It seems to me like. Well, and you pointed this out on, on your video. I guess what is maybe reassuring about these two situations, that the killing of George Floyd and the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, is that like everybody seems to agree that, that these went too far. Like you said, when you've got police chiefs in Alabama and Tennessee uh-huh. that are saying that the Minnesota police screwed up here, then like maybe that's a turning point. I mean, I don't know if like, I mean, by the time this episode airs, I don't know if the conversation has already moved on too much to to whether or not protesting is okay and it's moved past the police brutality conversation but like at least maybe people are starting to recognize that that's too far yeah i think so yeah they are i know they are my cousin and i she lives in birmingham by the way shout out tasha her husband brian is working at the hospital and he's done a few corona rotations shout them out but anyway we've had conversations about our family members which ones have made certain amounts of progress and she'll send me screenshots of things they posted that surprised her in a good way. And I'll say that I had someone very close to me and my wife. I won't say who, I don't want to like embarrass. He's, he's very upset about the looting, but he acknowledged that this was murder. And I cannot tell you how big of a deal that is. Now, I do have one, you know, kind of small pet peeve, and it's petty, I know. Anytime something like this happens, whether it's in Portland or Minneapolis or Denver or wherever, you know, you log on to Twitter and 
well, there's George Wallace trending again. And so, you know, it's always George Wallace who gets brought up as like, well, he won, I guess. Or people bring up Martin Luther King and completely misrepresent everything he ever stood for. But somehow, you know, it always comes back to the South's racist history or Alabama's racist history and not necessarily, I mean, you, you look at Minnesota, I mean, that their last 10 years have been pretty terrible. And so, yeah, it, I had to, I had to make like a decision to not go down that road at all in the video that I made about this, because I felt like I didn't want to like get off track too much or whatever, but I know exactly what you mean. And I do agree with you. And yeah, like you said, it being like, it's petty. It's not important as far as, you know, what's actually happening at the moment but i know what you mean one thing this will not change this situation in minnesota right now is the overall perception that the south is where all the racist people are that will not move to minnesota in anybody's minds because it didn't after you know philando castile a couple years ago there or whatever you know like the other important thing to say whenever i get into this type of thing is i'm not trying to say that we don't have a problem with racism in the South. That's always. No, yeah, it's not. I'm not saying that. that. I'm saying it's obviously a problem everywhere and it doesn't get treated as such because the South gets treated as a scapegoat. And whenever it comes up in a specific instance like this one, yes, everybody talk, everybody talks about like this scenario and it's about like the police and it is about the police, but it's, it's not about, the state of Minnesota or the Midwest or whatever, having broader That's issues. That's it's not petty. I don't think it's petty at all. It sounds petty, especially if you word yourself, if you word it incorrectly, and you got to be careful when you talk about it. But it is very important not to let, frankly, the liberals of the world, especially outside of the South, have a whipping boy to cast racism upon, and then that keep us from dealing with what is a systemic police state issue that has both tinges of racism and tinges, frankly, of just fascism in general, infiltrating our cop system all over this country. But I recognize that with my accent and my skin, that when I bring that up, it sounds like I'm saying, it ain't just a South by God. Right. Yeah. It's not about like going to bat for Alabama necessarily. It's more just about like like you said, it's a scapegoat. It's it's a way of avoiding the tougher conversation by saying, oh, well, let's go back to our touchstones of the 1950s and 60s and 70s and kind of ignore right. the reality of, you know, it's easier to talk about George Wallace in some ways for some of us than it is to talk about Donald Trump and, you know, the fact that he got elected in, in 2016 and is from New York. Y'all have said it plenty of times. We've talked about it on the show before. There is a shit ton of stuff that we have to figure out and fix in Alabama and in the South, but some of those things do have to happen on the national level, and those conversations don't happen if every conversation is about George Wallace. Yeah, I saw two pictures in the span of two days that went like sort of viral on social media, and one of them was a guy, according to the poster, showed up at their house to like install solar panels or wiring or something. And he like, there's layers to this idiocy. He had a shirt that said white power on it, like just in big, huge letters said white power on it. And of course, very behold the master racy. He was like, it would have said meanwhile in Alabama. That's what the like straight up was. that. And then the next day I saw that picture that was, that went more viral and more people saw of that guy in the grocery store and his mask was a full on clan hood. I saw right? that one. Yeah. Both of those dudes were in California. I don't know. Nobody was talking about the fact that those guys are in California. If those 
things had been set in Alabama or Georgia or whatever, that would have been like part of the headline of the picture that was being shared. Everybody was trying to say that dude was the South. And again, if you argue with him, you sound like you're trying to defend the South and act like we don't have racists. And the, what I need people to understand is that racism doesn't know geography. It's not like racism got to the northern part of Kentucky and was like, ah, I feel a little uncomfortable. I don't like the winter. Let's head back. You had a bit that you were posting recently, Drew, about it also doesn't know uh, accent. You know, when you get down south, I think I don't want to butcher your quote, but you said y'all are afraid of the wrong accent or something like that. Well, it was just the idea that the Hick accent, which is mine, the Appalachian one, is a scary one because the movie's like Deliverance. And every time they put a Klan member in a movie now, he has my accent or some semblance thereof. But the Gone with the Wind accent has been elevated also because of movies to be this noble, amazing one. And if you really look at who owned slaves, it's most likely. And that's not me bragging that people like me didn't own slaves. I'm sure some did. But if you look at like all these port cities like fucking Charleston and Savannah and all that, y'all are afraid of the wrong accent. <laughs> You're vilifying some old boy who just wants to fucking shoot deer and hang out and spit tobacco and elevating the dude in the mansion because you think he's got nice... How, who the fuck do you think paid for his boat, man? Right. To kind of go back to the way Dr. King gets misused, you know, I mean, Highlander Folk School and kind of the alliance between poor blacks and, and poor white Appalachians. But do you want to talk about the Highland Center? We got... Where do you want to start? I would get so hyped and I get so angry, not just at outsiders, at insiders in East Tennessee who don't in my opinion, and obviously every, every egotistical maniac wants people to see the world the way they do, but it's like, why are we not elevating this? Why is the University of Tennessee not sending every political science student there to learn? It's right there. Uh, and if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about, it is a organization, among other things, it's an organization training center. It trains you to become an organizer. And in the 60s, it was instrumental in everything that changed in America. And it's as Appalachian as, you know, your mama hitting you with a cast iron because you back talk about Jesus, like, or whatever little caricature everyone's comfortable with us having. It's as Appalachian as that. Yeah, and Rosa Parks went there. Dr. King went there. I mean, you know, it certainly played a, a pivotal role in history. And I think it was set on fire last year, two years ago, and, and nobody ever really looked into that. Let's talk about something a little lighter, I guess. Um, it does seem like, the opioid epidemic. The opioid epidemic. <laughs> it's having a moment. You know, everybody's stuck at home. We have nothing to do. <laughs> this haircut happened. <laughs> it does seem like Southern culture, Southern comedy is kind of, I don't know, having a moment. I mean, Dolly Parton was bigger last year than she might have ever been in her career. Everybody's watching Ken Burns' 15-hour documentaries about country music. Grand Ole Opry is getting a TV station. And then obviously, you know, shows like Righteous Gemstones, even The Unicorn, I think, is set in, in North Carolina. I mean, shout out to Walton Goggins for, for being the best. Is this a turning point for Southern culture becoming mainstream culture or is it already? I don't know. It still doesn't feel that way to me, but it might just be a thing of part of that is like that's been very ingrained in me for a long time. You know what I mean? Like my whole life feeling like we weren't represented in any real way uh, other than the one way that everybody knew, you know, all the time. And so that's been like a thing that I've had personally for as long as I can remember. So I might just be a little more biased and still sort of feeling that. Also the fact that none of our shows have gotten made yet, I'm sure is a factor. <laughs> but 
Drew has a whole bit about how like Southern culture is, is cool or like our shit is cool now. Cause like, you know, the hipsters co-opted a lot of like Southern shit and that began years ago. So, I mean, it's been sort of like infiltrating the mainstream for sure, I think, but I don't know how mainstream I personally would ever predict becoming. Yeah. And I think that when you lay it out, like you just laid it out, and there's there's several other examples. I could see how the outsider would definitely say like, oh, man, the South's really having a moment. But and this is strictly speaking from somebody who a is sort of on the inside and B, as Trey said, maybe a little biased because none of our shit's got made yet. But like it definitely still feels like we're I'm not going to say fighting an uphill battle, but but like definitely still going against the grain in a lot of ways. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think that certain things all like Dolly Parton, like, okay, of course, <laughs> it's fucking not, you know what I mean? But like for us, there's definitely still that, like, they always say they want us. And then when it gets down right down to it, it still feels like they don't. So I don't know. man. And that's what kind of makes, I guess, I mean, some of Southern culture, what it is, is like that kind of going against the grain chip on your shoulder type thing. We are having a moment. I do think it's mostly just a moment. I don't think it's here to stay. And I'll tell you why it may be here to stay in, in the zeitgeist, but it's already happened with country music. Country music did become mainstream. And for most of us, we look at it now and we go, that's not our culture. And this analogy is poor because I know there's a history of appropriating black culture. But I do think there's some parts that are analogous to someone tells a black artist or a hip hop artist, you can't be on this particular TV show because you're too racy or you're too edgy or whatever. And then they see Miley Cyrus up there twerking and rapping or half rapping. And it's like, wait, I mean, that's not my culture, but it's someone kind of using it. And that's sort of how I think we all feel about most mainstream country music, just as an example. And I think that's what's going to happen. I think that we will like just take us as an example. What will happen is we will eventually figure out a show that is close or safe enough and they'll put it on the air. And half of our fans will accuse us of fucking selling out, man. Or we won't ever get that shot because we don't get there or whatever and also we're just going through a wave eventually they'll turn on us again yeah i was about to say i think more realistically it's that we will just do all the heavy lifting and then a group of three better looking <laughs> redneck liberal gentlemen yeah will, one, will one day they'll like they'll be cool like in the end like they'll all pay for our funerals separately they'll be like those guys are the ones that really did it but like we'll die fucking penniless. Right. And I don't know if they ever ch change their accents. I don't want to necessarily accuse them of doing it, but it does seem like, you know, you have some Southern comedians who who are among the biggest in the world. Stephen Colbert is from South Carolina and Ellen DeGeneres is from Louisiana, but they don't necessarily sound Southern. And then you have Larry the Cable Guy who doesn't sound Southern uh, in real life, but kind of plays on that accent and so it's interesting y'all obviously never seem to have tried to lose your accents i don't i don't know if you ever thought about trying it but no john have you seen the account yeah 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 yeah. pardon me for name dropping but to quote patterson he said it all and there was nothing else to say after that about that particular thing patterson was wrong because ever south their song the drive by truckers song captured the same thing but you know there's this great line in there where he's like hollywood won't make a southern man make a southern movie and then the whole thing is is in some ways about why I, I just that's how I feel. No, yeah, no, we've actually talked about that a lot, like over the the years, sort of. And you you nailed it really about how we all like growing up and being into comedy, we always perceived exactly what you just talked about, which is that there was pretty much two different kinds of comics from the South: the kind that was from there, but you would never know it unless you just 
happen to know where they grew up. And then the very stereotypical blue collar version of it. And that's it. And I, I feel like part of what drew us together early on and, you know, when we all met each other and stuff was the fact that we all shared the same sort of idea of not understanding why you couldn't be both and neither at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Like if you could still sound explicitly Southern and whatnot and not necessarily then have to just be a uh, blue collar comic doing, you know, cable guy material or whatever. There's no reason why you have to pick one or the other. Yeah, that was sort sure. of a big part of our philosophy, I guess. Well, and it seems to be working. I mean, just last week, y'all were, what, number one on Apple Podcasts for the stand-up comedy category for for the Well-Read Comedy Podcast? Yeah, that is that is accurate. That's the only thing we have going on right now, but yeah. <laughs> hey, well, that's, that's more than most. And on that note, I would to jump on that, and yeah, you go up. I think, for me, just as a comedian, I am getting a little tired of always thinking about that and I've been working on not and I guess my advice to be if anybody out there is listening who wants to create if you want to talk about your accent and that weird work space it, it means to be a southern then do it but if you get tired of it just just stop just say fuck it you know like I'm just I'm tired of explaining myself me and Trey were talking very recently about when you go on stage in LA you gotta kind of address your accent up top and if you don't they, they don't know what to think of you and that's true, but I'm just not going to do it anymore. Eventually, one of us will yeah. break. They'll break or I'll kill myself, but I'm not doing it anymore, you know? Yeah, and I mean, for the, for the record, I definitely do feel like y'all feel that it, I, it is necessary for me to explain myself in places that aren't the South. However, it's not that I have lost all interest in doing, quote, blue-collar material. I still like doing that shit. Like, I do want to do jokes about my aunt smoking cigarettes at Christmas and, and beating my uncle's teeth out of his mouth. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can like that too, I guess. I don't want any of us to, because I'm sure that they agree with me. Like, we would never want to say, like, with this accent, you should, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say other than, like, I like doing some redneck, blue collar, stupid, Larry the Cable Guy horse shit too. It's for me. Coming up after the break, Corey, Drew, and Trey draft their top comedians from the South. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama Stories from a Pandemic. As the novel coronavirus wreaks havoc in Alabama and across the world, these are the stories of the people seeking to survive the disease and its economic strain. I've been doing this 40 years. I bet I've fired five people in my entire life. And, you know, we're in the process of laying off hundreds of people. And I can tell you that's as tough as anything we've ever done. A lot of us don't have health insurance. A lot of us don't have sick days. You can't collect unemployment when shows cancel. Everyone is worried. Everyone is tense. Everyone is concerned. I have a business that I cannot even run. For two months now, I've been closed. I have five employees. They keep asking me when we're going to reopen, and I don't know yet. I'm an optimistic guy, and, and I think that my group is smart enough and hardworking enough and kind enough to get us through this, whatever they throw at us. And, and that's certainly my hope. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a Pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Y'all have made a reputation as being, to use your nickname, Trey, the, the liberal rednecks, the, you know, the well-read comedy guys. Do you ever feel like you are kind of stuck in a box where you have to make political and liberal and woke jokes all the time? I mean, is that, is, is that kind of a, a box, too? At least pepper them in, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know... 
exactly to what extent they feel it. But I mean, yeah, I personally absolutely feel that a lot. And like, I don't know, it kind of goes both ways, really. I, I could see it from multiple perspectives. It does get frustrating sometimes sort of feeling like there is this expectation of me, but at the, at the live shows too, to sort of talk about stuff, like real stuff, issues or whatever else. I don't mind doing that, but like Corey said a minute ago, sometimes I also just want to like, talk about my wife for a little bit or whatever. And, you know, I do that. And normally it's fine. What I've found is like, as long as I give them some of what I feel like it is that they're expecting or came for, then I can do that other stuff too. And it's okay. But I, I do feel sort of whether I, it's mostly in my head or not, I don't know, but I definitely feel that dynamic at play. But the other side of it is like, I think for that same reason and because of the same thing, I've also always from the very beginning kind of been allowed to be serious about stuff if I want to, which like, I feel like a lot of comedians don't feel that they can do that. They feel like they feel pressure. Like if I'm not saying something funny, I shouldn't say anything at all. Cause I'm a comedian. I've always felt from the very beginning, if I wanted to be sincere about something I can, and it's fine and people aren't like bothered by that. And I, you know, I have an appreciation for that. Cause like I said, I think a lot of comics feel like they don't have that. So, you know, it's ups and downs, like with anything, I guess. But yeah, I do feel it for sure. I think ninety nine percent of successful comedians end up, whether they intended to or not, having sort of a brand, yeah, or sort of a theme or whatever that they're known for. And without naming names, I've heard more comedians complain about what Trey was just talking about, who have a platform and a big audience. I've heard more comedians complain about how they feel like they can't say anything political because everyone jumps all over them or whatever. So. I think in a lot of ways, you know, it's different for Trey because overnight you had a platform. But for me, it's like, well, this is kind of who I, and I know it's also true for you, Trey, but this is kind of who I planned on being anyway as a comedian, either consciously or unconsciously. When that time Trey was talking about that we were sort of drawn together and I was telling jokes, making fun of the church and Jesus. And Trey had this joke where he like talks about abortion, which you weren't allowed to do. And Corey was talking about getting fucking abortions. And like, you know, I've watched the owner of a club tell him, do not do that again, or I won't let you go back up there. And Corey did it again, you know, <laughs> like this is where we were going, you know, and I think we all feel some pressure, but to resent it would be silly. I feel the same way. I mean, it's, it's what got us here. So it's what it is. It's also true. It, yeah. And I mean, dude, here's the thing. I mean, my favorite thing is my favorite thing to do in my act is to zig when you think I'm going to zag. So like, I like starting out a joke that seems like it's going to be real serious. And then it's about, you know, farting a bubble. Or I like to start a joke that you think is going to be super stupid, like, you know, me farting a bubble. And then turns out it was about the bubble was black. The bubble was black the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I, kinda, I like playing it to my silly, silly advantage. Like whatever. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. And it, I mean, it seems like I was reading a lot about Jason Isbell's recent album. And I mean, I think a lot of musicians that kind of get caught up in protest music or, you know, higher brown music kind of wrestle with the same expectations and stuff. And definitely, I mean, just everything coming out of the South always feels like it has to be super serious about some of that stuff yeah i'm right i mean like just you know like drew said i mean even if i hadn't popped and was still just you know back in knoxville or whatever it was still it was always the type of thing that i was gonna do anyway because i always felt like I, I there's plenty of comics that i love and think are great that don't really like you know talk about the issues but every single one of my personal favorites you know as a big comedy nerd has always been the guys who really 
cover the societal hard hitting topics or however you want to put it. So I always kind of, in my mind, I always sort of felt that that was like one of the biggest kind of reasons for or uses for stand up comedy to me, you know, like that's like a big part of what it can do and you should use it for. So it was always like kind of baked in for me too, for sure. Last time we talked a little bit about like who the best Southern comedians are, who who some of the hackiest ones are. Kind of want to revisit that, but steal from Dave Chappelle a little bit and maybe do it as a draft. So just going around the horn, you each get to draft three comics from the South. We'll start with Corey, just because you're up at the top of the box for me here in Zoom. So you get number one overall pick. We'll do Corey, Trey, Drew, and then we'll do it snake draft. So you get the swing there, Drew. It's Foxworthy. And if I if I get the number one draft, I can't use it irresponsibly. Southern comedian, it's it's probably Foxworthy. And we're going all time, so live or dead. I mean, if we're right, it depends. It's like I want to give you my favorite, but at the same time, I'm trying to win a championship. You understand right. what you I'm saying? Team <laughs> <laughs> so like, go with me, like being a being the best GM for my team. I'm going to take Foxworthy. It's a good pick. So it's my it's, it's my your pick, pick now. Yeah. I guess I'll stick with those guys and go with Ron White. Solid pick. You get the swing. I get two then. Yeah, right? that's right. Roy Wood Jr. has earned his place as a first-round pick. Absolutely. Uh, Amen. And then to open the second round, I'm stuck between two. I'm going to go with Hicks, but I'm going to give Corey's caveat. I'm doing this mostly for my team. He's got one bit about the weather and drugs and all that that I think is incredible. Other than that, I can't remember a single joke that man told. No, he told PR people to kill themselves before, like, every edgelord was doing that. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to go with Hicks as a GM. All right. Back to you, Trey. Got two in mind. I'm going to save one of them in case someone else doesn't say it, I guess, and go with a – since I did Ron White to begin with, I'll pick a uh, newer school, although still – uh, elder statesman to us and I must say Theo Vaughn who I think is one of the funniest human beings on the face of the earth right now just as a as a funny person he kills me every time like just he just the way he talks about anything to anybody is funny in a way I'm like very in a way very specific to him so I'll go and with very Theo. southern very 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 he southern. is, he is yeah. every funny uncle you've ever had but better of course. <laughs> All right, Corey, your last two picks. Oh, I got two in a row. Okay, so I'm going to do uh, Tim Wilson as my next pick. Tim is number one in my heart, but again, as I said, I wanted to grab up Jeff Foxworthy real quick. Tim is, unfortunately passed away. He's one of the dudes that I learned comedy from. I got to open for him a couple times, but he was just – he was a comics comic, tremendous guy, southern as they come, but also very skeptical of the police and the government and uh, thought everyone was equally stupid. I learned a lot from him on that regard. And for my last pick, uh, I'm going to just to round it out here. I'm going to go with Minnie Pearl. Okay. All right. I was about to say, not a woman picked yet, but there we go. She was, well, and it's weird because I want to say Minnie Pearl opened up so many doors for female Southern comedians. Not a lot still out there, but that's just because of how insanely, that's how hard Minnie Pearl crushed, I guess, is a testament to the fact that it's so hard for female comedians, especially in the South, but Minnie was doing it at a time when there was none. She wrote her own jokes. She's got published joke books. She was just absolutely tremendous. So, Minnie Pearl, Tim Wilson, and Jeff Foxworthy. Solid team. Trey, your last pick. 
this is like if we're talking about this team of ours is going to be all in their prime and go up in a room and it's the same room and do their thing then i'm confident with this because it's a guy that talked a lot about before uh hugely influential to me but that a lot of people don't know about and i'm gonna go with the uh, Stuart huff who is brilliantly fun he like does the thing that the three of us do you know but he's been doing it for oh you know 20 plus years and better at it and better <laughs> yeah Stuart is uh brilliant and very underappreciated and very 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 southern and also an awesome dude so yeah i can't not pick Stuart. all right drew last pick and a lot of pressure first of all i want to just throw out there in case there's anybody out there saying chris rock is southern he was born in south carolina but he yeah and then i think he was out I don't he think was he i would i would have used to pick on chris rock otherwise because i agree with your assessment yeah I, he doesn't count unfortunately in that way all right and then I'm going to leave two more people out, and I'm going to, I feel like it, they, they're, they're honorable mentions that are worth mentioning. Bargatze is really close. When he named his album Tennessee Kid, it made me furious. <laughs> when I saw how good it was, it made me extra furious. <laughs> so good. And in 10 years, he might be one of the goats, and we might have to redo this draft. Wanda Sykes I thought was from Virginia, and I was right, and I almost picked her, but I got to go with my man Jerry Clower. I don't think Southern comedy – exists without Jerry Clower in the form that it is. I don't think storytelling as a form to deliver comedy exists, at least not as soon as it came on the scene without Jerry Clower and those tapes and all his cousins and the Leadbetters and all the things he did. And my mom used to play me those tapes. And man, it holds up. Yeah, my dad used to play that stuff for us and it's phenomenal. It's still really fun. Yeah, for sure. All right, well, we'll post y'all's teams and let people vote on them. Guys, thanks so much for all of your time. It was a lot of fun. What's next for y'all? I mean, other than being stuck at home for foreseeable future. Yeah, I mean, we got our podcast at uh, wellreadcomedy.com, W-E-L-L-R-E-D, comedy.com. But other than that, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, pretty much that. And I've got Facebook Watch. We'll show South and Off where episodes of that are coming out right now. So check that out, too. That's just that and, you know, Twitter and shit. That's all. <laughs> That's what we got. And follow us on social media. I'm at Drew Moore Comedy. He's at Trey Crowder. Corey is at Corey R. Forrest. There you go. Or you can just uh, put us in your Google machine and shit will pop up. Yeah, go buy their shirts. Go buy their albums. Go buy their books. I've been doing a pretty decent job, I think, of posting videos and stuff. I mean, obviously, I've been serious of late, as you were talking about. But if you follow us, you're going to get the content that you want, I think. Um, when you post that, will you post that Nate Bergazzi, Wanda Sykes, and George Wallace got honorable mention? Kind of wish I would have drafted George Wallace, frankly, and I'm afraid that every, instead of voting, everyone's just going to tell us what's more. The other George Wallace, yeah. He, he should trend on Twitter for once. Yeah, we'll we'll mention that, but we'll do it after the fact so that it's not putting the uh, thumb on the scale for your team. <laughs> All right, well, thanks, guys. All right, brother. All thanks right. for having well, us, Thanks, man. John. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, good, good to talk to you again. And that's all the time we have this week, y'all. Thanks to Trey Crowder, Corey Ryan Forrester, and Drew Morgan for sitting down with me to talk. You can find and support their work at wellreadcomedy.com. And look, here's some news. On top of everything else that's going on, I am furloughed this week. And if you've been putting it off, I sure would appreciate you taking the time to subscribe to our show, share it with your friends, and leave us a five-star review. Hopefully that way I can keep doing this job and they can not furlough me in the future. This episode was executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, and it was produced and edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. 
And look, I can't bring you the news this week, so go ahead and go follow all of the Reckon social media accounts to stay up to date on everything happening in the South and around the world. And until next week, be well. And don't forget to laugh. <laughs>